to banter, where one of us knows what the word banter means, the other two are just along for the ride. Kirk, say what's up. What's up? Shane, say hi. Hi. James, I really like, or Kirk, I like your shirt. What's going on with that? Uh, Denver Browns. A little yeah. uh, semi-pro team in Denver, Colorado. Repping rep, right? Yeah, Matthew Repplinger. Uh, well, I bought this shirt from him, but <laughs> he's a good hey, dude. <laughs> he's a great dude. First interview. Love that man. Um, go use yourself. So go watch some independent ball out there in Denver. Good, good stuff out there. Um, we are coming to you on a Monday. Spring training is upon us. You just heard our new theme song. Reach out to Zach Zollner um, on the Instagram. Check, check the, uh, the description. We'll give you a, a link to his Instagram there. But huge shout out to Zollner for doing that for us. We now have a theme song, boys. Let's go. Ow, ow, ow. <laughs> uh, let's talk starting rotation. Um, just a little prequel to our interview coming up here in a little bit, Jason Hirsch. So let's see what the uh, 2021 pitching rotation has in store. Uh, we just dropped a blog that we have arguably one of the top five pitching rotations in Rockies history coming in. Uh, with Marquez, Sanzi, Freeland, and Gray, and you throw in a Gomber in there. And our pitching staff, our starting five, looks pretty solid. Agree, disagree, hot take, pull take, what do you think? My issue with Gomber is that I'll always look at him and go, you're not Nolan. <laughs> think, think we can give him the number 28? Would that make yeah, your feelings about him better? He should definitely do that. Take number 28, live up to it. I mean, honestly, like number 28 should probably just be retired with how good Nolan was. Oh, that's a good conversation. But I don't know if that'll happen because. He should take number 28. He should play third base and should drop some dingers. Give up pitching. You're done. So Gomber is officially Nolan resurrected. Yeah, well, I think I think the big question mark is that number five spot. Um, I'm I like the the first four. I mean that, but the inconsistencies are a little bit concerning. But you never know; it could be like a 2017 year where they're just all rolling on all cylinders, especially Freeland, and just carry the team basically. But um, I don't know. I'm excited about Cassiani too because I I feel like he could really turn out to be a solid, solid five spot guy. Um, but who knows? I mean, injuries are going to happen and yeah, for we, sure. we, we need depth. So it's good that we got a couple options there. Rollison's looked really nice for a left-handed pitcher. He looked really good today. Um, but out of that rotation, the only person I trust that if I was a betting man and I'm not, you are, <laughs> you are it'd be her mom like i that's the only person i'm comfortable laying a 10 spot on to get me a win everybody else is just so so hit or miss they got the talent no doubt but consistency is an issue like kirk said Ramon has definitely been the most consistent for the last few years um injuries huge part of it freeland injured uh cindy injured 
Gray's injured constantly. So that number six spot that Derek Rodriguez, that Rollison, that uh, that Castellani is going to be super important. Do you guys have you guys seen Castellani's uh, numbers this spring training? Got lit up today. He threw twelve straight balls, threw a strike, and then his next pitch was a ball, and they they had to pull him. Didn't have it today. It's fine. He's just working on his screwball, working on that palm ball. He's got a couple things in the bag. He's just working on it. Nothing to be worried about. Right, boys? That's the the takeaway? That's what we're going with? Yeah, (laughs) got to be. I will say, though, that the state, like where where we are as a team, I'm excited that we have Freeland because you know he's a Colorado guy and he's going to give, you know, he's going to love playing for the Rockies no matter what. So I love that he's he's around and we're always going to get full effort from him regardless of how well we're doing as a team you know yeah, you guys should, be great you know you should get as excited for tell me tell me who i should get excited for those 10 to 15 starts that chi chi gonzalez is going to give you <laughs> chi chi the forgotten son we kind of forget about chi chi what's the over under on chi chi start betting man He's going to start 15 games, guaranteed. So over under, over under 15, you push in, you going over, you going under. What are you doing? I'm going over 15 games, and I'm going to go over <laughs> a six ERA. No, no, we didn't ask that. You didn't have to bring it down, dude. Just what are the starts? You're going more than 15 starts. Kirk, over under 15 for Chi-Chi. Um, well, I hope it's under because if he's starting 15 <laughs> games, then like things aren't going well. Right. And I'm going to go in with hope. I'm going to go with under because we need Castellani. We need him to figure it out. I mean, second round pick with his stuff that he showed off last year, he's got it. It's just now it's got to be figured out hopefully soon. Yep. So get ready for those 15 starts by Chi Chi. Uh, Jason, is in the waiting room. Jason Hurts is in the waiting room we'll leave it at that we got a solid five check out the new blog if you haven't um get ready sit down grab that popcorn grab that soda and get ready for an interview with Jason Hirsch let's go rocks Blake Street Banter interview with Jason Hirsch. Um, 18 strikeouts in the game in college, second round draft pick, Texas League pitcher of the year, PCL pitcher of the year, starting pitcher of the Futures All Star game, major league pit pitcher for the Astros and the Rockies. We got Jason Hirsch on the line here. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm glad you guys read off that Wikipedia profile because the rest <laughs> of it's not. We, only, we, we do the di- deep dive in over here. Clearly. You guys are doing your research. I like it. I was going to say, did you edit the Wikipedia page yourself or what? Uh, I plead the fifth. <laughs> it's an impressive one if it was you. Some, somebody did it. I don't know. Wasn't it? It's just, it's one of those things where it's like, wow, you have a Wikipedia page. Like, I don't know if that's like when you know you've officially made it, if you have a Wikipedia page. But I remember the first time that I, uh, I realized that I had one. I was like, wow, I'm actually like on there. That's kind of cool. Right. The World Series was no big deal, but you got home and said, I got to Wikipedia page. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's right. Hey, maybe one day Blake Street Banter will have their own Wikipedia page. 
Maybe. Do you know somebody you know that I'm can gonna make go, it for I'm going to go right now while we're doing this, <laughs> while you guys are talking. I'm going to Wikipedia to make a, a page for you. Please, boys, boys, we made it. We're good. <laughs> You're official. Um, that, that's awesome. I, again, thank you for being here. Thank you for coming on. You do have a great track record. Um, when did you, I kind of want to start at the beginning. When did you know, know you had like major league stuff? Like I've never experienced that kind of greatness. Like just knowing that I was going to have it and be there and get to that point. And I just really want to live vicariously through you. Like, when did sure. you know? Well, I don't know if I ever really knew. Um, I know that from the time I was a little kid, I always said that I wanted to be a major league baseball player. And you can go back and my parents have schoolwork that, you know, it says, what do you want to be when you grow up? And people wrote fireman or astronaut or whatever it was, you know, when you're in third, fourth grade, I always wrote, I want to be a major league baseball player. And um, you know, I always kind of kept that in the back of my head that that was something I wanted to do. And obviously, you know, it's way more difficult now to do it than it was back when I did it, even though obviously it wasn't, you know, the easiest thing in the world, especially the path that I took. But, you know, when I went to high school, I went to high school to play baseball. Um, I also got a great education, but it just happened to be the reason that I wanted to go to that specific high school at St. Francis was because they had a great baseball program. Um, and little did I know that, you know, my time at St. Francis, that I would have three different coaches in four years. And, you know, we really wouldn't be that good of a ball club, but, you know, looking back on that time, um, you know, we faced a lot of adversity. We weren't always the best. I didn't always have the greatest outings. And I think a lot of that carried over to my professional career where I was able to deal with some adversity, um, especially when, you know, when things weren't going well, whereas, maybe somebody else in my shoes who had always gone to the best high school and the, the most winningest, whatever, um, would never have been able to, to accomplish that. Um, I chose Cal Lutheran because again, another great baseball program, but for me, it was an opportunity to play. I wanted to go to play at Arizona state. That was like my dream school. Um, they wanted me to go to a Juco and transfer. And, and I had heard too many horror stories about mm -hmm. transferring and losing credit. So I decided that, uh, Calu was the best opportunity for me to just play. I just wanted to get on the field and play and, you know, God willing, the, the chips fall where they might, and, and I might end up where I want to be. Um, and three years later, they, they fell right into place exactly where I wanted to be. And um, I ended up getting drafted and, and, you know, having a major league career. So, you know, the path that I took wasn't probably the, the most storybook path, but it, it was one that worked for me and one obviously that we, you know, at our facility here in, in Denver that, that we're promoting to our athletes that it really doesn't matter where you play, that if you're good enough, they're going to find you. Right. Especially with the way, with the way social media is now, uh, if you get your talent out there, the sky's yeah. the limit. Yeah, social media has changed the recruiting game immensely. You know, obviously when I played, it was, we didn't have social media. I didn't have Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or any of those other things. I think the internet was really just kind of in its infancy. Uh, in terms of how we promote ourselves and how we do things. And, you know, it was basically word of mouth, you know, a, a coach or a recruiter, or, um, a scout, you know, hears from somebody like, oh, there's this guy, he throws really hard, you should go take a look at him. And so they'd have to go do a lot of fact finding. And, uh, and nowadays, you know, just I, I pull my, my phone out and uh, I go to Twitter and look at fast, uh, flat ground app and I can see any number of, you know, unsigned high school arms or college arms around the country, all throwing, you know, ridiculously hard with disgusting off speed stuff. And, 
Um, you know, I've got friends, uh, former teammates that are um, pitching coaches at major division one schools and all the way down to D threes. And, you know, they're, they're scouring YouTube and social media for, for the diamond in the rough, you know, a guy who's fallen through the cracks. And so it's become immensely easier to get seen as a high school or collegiate athlete now than it's ever been. And obviously we have a ton more data. Um, we have a ton more access to, to things. And so it, it makes it a lot easier to get yourself, you know, known if you're a small West coast kid trying to get to an East coast school or vice versa or anywhere in between, um, you know, you're, you're basically one tweet or, or one Instagram post away from signing somewhere. Yeah. I went from, uh, um, you know, who you knew to, we talked to a guy that got signed by the Rockies that, that posted something on pitching ninja. And next thing you know, he's got yep. an early contract. So, I mean, shit, look at the guy that, uh, I'm sorry. I want, am I allowed to curse on this, this program? Yeah. Okay. I see we're drinking wine. So clearly the alcohol rule is not in effect. <laughs> um, I mean, think about the kid who, who was throwing at the speed pitch in, was it Oakland? And he yeah. threw like 96 on the speed pitch and they signed him or was it Chicago or somewhere like that? I mean, just the most benign thing you go viral. Next thing you know, you're in a major league uniform. So it's, it's clearly possible to do just about anything nowadays. So like you, you work with the fast baseball development stuff. Like, do you search for people like that and like develop them or do they come to you? How does that all work? Yeah, so we are a development facility. We don't run teams here. Um, that would be really easy for us to do, in in, in kind of a, in a sort of in a sort of way. You know, teams are, re are really not that easy. There's a lot of work that goes into them. But um, you know, from a revenue standpoint, they're obviously very good for facilities. But we chose to go the player development route. We like to have athletes that come to us and say, "Hey, I want to throw harder, develop a new pitch, or my arm is injured, hurt, I'm coming off of uh, surgery, or whatever it might be." And so we take pride in, you know, our ability to, to get them back on the field or, you know, develop them and take them to new heights that they didn't realize were possible and, and go on and, you know, have major league aspirations or continue to have major league aspirations. So, you know, whether that's going to the college of their choice or even just going to play college baseball, I mean, you talk about such a, a minuscule number of athletes, of high school athletes that actually get to go on and play college baseball. Um, I, I think the number somewhere around 11% of high school athletes play college baseball. So, you know, it's not everybody gets to do it. So, you know, having an opportunity uh, for one of our athletes to go on and play it, no matter what level it is, junior college or, or division one, two, three, NAI, it doesn't matter. Um, that's a feather in our hat to allow those athletes to continue pursuing their dreams. And so that's the route that we've chosen to, to do at our facility. And how, how did that start? Like, is that kind of towards the end of your major league career? Is that something that you thought about going down? Yeah, the so that, that was the, um, it was the culmination of the, oh shit moment. What do I do now that I can't play baseball anymore? Um, I was in Amarillo, Texas, playing independent league on a surgically repaired shoulder, um, trying to figure out a path back to the major leagues or to organize baseball, even just get a minor league job somewhere. And me realizing that that was going to constantly be an uphill battle um, because of the nature of my injury. You know, if I had had Tommy John, let's just say, um, my road back to the big leagues potentially would have been much simpler or easier. But shoulder injuries are like the kiss of death. So, you know, you have a shoulder injury and 
there's you're you're too high of a risk and not high enough of a reward um, for a lot of ball clubs. So, you know, I'm in Amarillo and I've got a bunch of green behind the ears, fresh out of college, you know, type players that I'm playing with that, you know, have never really experienced anything like pro ball. And some of them are struggling. Some of them are asking for advice. And, you know, for me, I've always prided myself on how I prepared and, and, you know, um, you know, things that I did away from the field. And that was, for me, was becoming more of a burden that I wasn't quite sure what was going on. But when one of those green players would come to me and say, hey, Jace, can you watch a bullpen or, um, you know, give me some advice on this, that or the other. And then they go out there and have success. I started getting that same sense of joy and fulfillment that I had that I used to have preparing myself to play and even playing the game itself. And so I started to kind of in my mind transition my thinking from maybe I should change my hats here and go from the player to more of a coach because I was having success doing it in just that small sample size. And I was getting that joy and fulfillment that I would have gotten from doing it myself. And then I got traded down to El Paso after the first season. And I remember driving from Amarillo to El Paso thinking to myself, what on God's green earth are you doing right now? Why are you driving 10 hours to some godforsaken hellhole? No offense. <laughs> In my mind, that was what was going on. I'm like, I'm going to stay, you know, basically in a Motel 6 staring into Juarez trying to pursue my major league career again. And I've got a wife and two kids at home. And so I started seeing the writing on the wall. Um, I had a very long discussion with my agent and my wife to try and convince me not to stay. And at the end of the day, I said, you know what? It's time for me to come home. And I felt in that moment, I felt very content in my decision. Um, I had accomplished quite a bit in my career from, you know, obviously, you know, being a, a second round draft pick to, you know, making my major league debut to going to a world series and then having a catastrophic injury and kind of filling every void in between those, those things. And I said, you know, I've done quite a bit in a very short amount of time that most players probably are never going to experience in their careers. And so I decided that uh, I packed up my stuff and, and I drove back up here to Denver and um, I, I met with somebody, a friend of mine who I came at a recommendation like, hey, will you give my kid a, a lesson or something like that? And I did. And I started having fun with it. And next thing you know, I had a team. And then next thing you know, I'm working at a facility. And then I just, I started what was cleverly known as the Jason Hirsch Pitching Academy. And I, I leveraged my celebrity and, and my name <laughs> for, for a number of years before ultimately we switched over to FAST. And um, FAST was an acronym for a program that we ran called Foundational Arm Strength Training. And it just seemed like a, a natural transition as my celebrity started to fade as, you know, the 07 season got further and further in the rear view. Um, we needed to focus on the purpose of what we were doing there, which was, you know, arm care and conditioning and, and developing athletes. And so that's ultimately why we went with fast. And um, we've been doing it for, I think this is my eighth year, ninth year that we've been doing it. O, uh, 13 was my first year doing it. And so um, I now have employees, I've got my own facility. So it's, it's grown pretty nicely. And um, I've allowed a little bit of control to be let go into other people's hands and feel very comfortable doing it with most of them. And um, so, yeah, at the end of the day, it's, it's been a very joyful and fulfilling um, endeavor and, and we continue to look to grow. 
what's more difficult pitching in a major league uh major league game or being a business owner um well i certainly enjoy the paychecks of the major leagues a lot better than i enjoy the paychecks <laughs> of being a small business owners. um there's a lot more paperwork uh i answer a lot of emails uh i do the web design for us i do graphic design for us so i wear a lot of hats um actually in college i was a graphic design uh, major uh, or multimedia major. So I had it, I dabbled in web design. I dabbled in graphic design. Uh, I did a little bit of that. So I kind of guess, I guess I've saved my company, you know, let's just call it millions over the years in uh, doing my own web design and, and graphic work. And um, I definitely don't enjoy running payroll. I don't enjoy answering emails all day. And I don't enjoy the administrative work. I definitely enjoy being on the floor um, learning more stuff. I mean, the, the, the world of pitching and baseball development and hitting all that, it's just, it's so, it's so fast to evolve and there's so much data and information. There's so many great resources out there. I just don't have time to read all of it, you know, read the next fan graphs blog or, you know, the next driveline blog or, you know, look, you know, scour through baseball savant data and, and, you know, develop stuff. It's just, there's so much. And I try and nip off little pieces here and there and, and keep myself informed. But at the end of the day, there's, I mean, I, I'd have to spend, I'd have to have my own sabbatical and, and, and spend some time digging down deeper into it just because it's evolved mm -hmm. so fast. Would you say, um, what's like the one thing that's been consistent, like as a coach on the development side since early 2000s when you were in high school? to what you see now like as a from a coaching development perspective like what's been that consistent piece um the most consistent piece is is the daily reminder that i still don't know everything um <laughs> that you know everybody i mean bodies are so unique arm actions are so i mean there, there's a there's a fun saying in in baseball is that every time you're on a field no matter how many times you've been there how many years decades you know, that you've been on a baseball field, you're always capable of seeing something new every time you're out there. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's the same thing in the player development world. Just when I think I've seen it all, something walks through the door and I go, wow, that I, I'd never seen that before. That's impressive. How did you do that? And let's, let's work on fixing it. Um, there's definitely a lot of commonalities. We see a lot of similar things come through you know, especially when it pertains to injury, overuse injury, um, ligament injuries, muscle tears, things like that. I mean, that's, that's pretty much standard issue, you know, to come through our doors at any given point. Um, but I mean, the coaching world is ever evolving. You know, I think when I first started doing this, I was very, I taught the way that I was taught. So my pitching coach, when I was a kid was, um, a guy named Mike Boyd, Mike Boyd's brother was oil can Boyd. If you're a baseball aficionado, you know who Oil Can wow. is. He pitched, I think he's still pitching. He's got to be freaking 70 years old. Um, but so Mike was very hands-on and very mechanical in certain ways um, that we that he taught me. And so I started teaching in that very same method where, you know, I would I would get in there and physically manipulate arms, bodies, whatever it is. And then, you know, I'd go to the old towel drill or some chair thingy and you know, because I didn't know any better, right? I was, I was, you know, just teaching kids the way that I was taught. And, and the basic started around, you know, from an arm care standpoint was the Jager bands. 
and Alan Jager is one of my, my mentors. And, and so I would teach that along with kind of this old school methodology. And then my students are actually the ones that kind of pushed me into the new age of baseball development. They kept asking about weighted balls. Hey coach, what do you know about weighted balls? I'm like, they scare me. I don't, I, what else do you want me to tell you? And they kept asking and kept asking and finally was like, all right, I'm going to call Jager. So I called Alan. I said, Al, what, what do you know about weighted balls? And he said, I'll tell you what, call this guy, Kyle Bodie up at driveline in Seattle and talk to him. So I reached out to Kyle and I actually ended up speaking with uh, Mike Rathwell, who's their CEO up there. We had a great conversation for about 45 minutes and um, went through a whole bunch of stuff. And I said, you know what, I'm going to go and read through all of the stuff that they've been doing. Um, they had written uh, four years worth of blogs at that point. I went back and I read every single one of them. Um, and then I decided to buy a set of balls and put myself through the program, knowing that, you know, if I broke, no big deal. I've already broken. It's not going to not going to hurt me anymore. But if one of my students were to break, that would weigh heavy on my conscience. And I just I couldn't do that to them. So I put myself through this program and I had a blast. My arm felt amazing. I was having fun training again. Um, I got back off the bump and I was like 85, 86 and feeling like a million bucks and was pulling down at 91 and like just feeling like a ball player again. I was like, all right, we're going to start doing this with our kids. And, you know, we kind of slowly started integrating some of the drills. And next thing you know, we're two feet jumping in and the rest is history, right? It's, it's one of those, like, uh, I chased the rabbit down the hole, right? I started with Alan. He led me to driveline. Driveline led me to, like, mm -hmm. Texas Baseball Ranch. Texas Baseball Ranch led me to, you know, Austin Wasserman back on the East Coast at AB Athletics. And, and next thing you know, like, social media is blowing up with all this stuff. And, you know, it's, it's an endless chase of, of information. And then it's, for me, it was compiling what are the important things for me and, you know, how do I start applying those to my athletes? How do I communicate that information effectively to them so that they can understand it and then put some of their fears at, at rest? You know, when someone says, oh, I'm going to make you throw away the ball, you're like, whoa, 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 time out here, partner. What, what do you mean you're going to make me throw away the ball? Isn't that kind of dangerous? And so, you know, being able to explain that stuff, the science that goes behind it, um, you know, was really important. And then obviously, you know, growing as a facility and, and learning all the new technology that's come out since then, things like Rapsodo. And, you know, now you've got Pitch AI that's doing biomechanics in your pocket and, um, you know, just kind of dabbling in all those different things. It's It's been fun to watch it grow, but it's also, like I said, it's very daunting to try and keep up with it. Yeah, it's probably overwhelming. Like, so, I mean, data obviously is a huge part of what you do. Like, is there any like certain data points that you look for in a picture that just kind of, I don't know, just like that stand out to you that? Yeah, so we, so we do an eval with all of our new students and, and we just, we, uh, we go through our warm up protocols. You know, we use weighted balls. We take video of them doing the drills. Um, and then we'll throw them up on the mountain and I'll throw a bullpen on Rapsodo. Um, and we were an early adopter on Rapsodo. We've had one for, I think we're going on five years now, four years, something like that. Um, so we've had it for quite a while and, and we've become very effective at using it and, and relaying information. So we'll have them throw a 20, 25 pitch bullpen, throw all their pitches, uh, fastball, curveball, slider, change, whatever you got, knuckleball, splitter, I don't care. And then, um, you know, what we're looking for are, we're looking at obviously velocity, just trying to get a baseline, figuring out how hard you throw. We look at spin efficiencies to see how well balls are spinning. 
Um, you know, fastballs, we want high spin efficiencies, you know, sliders, we want low spin efficiencies, curveballs, changeups, high spin efficiencies. And then we're just looking at movement profiles and going, all right, you know, how does your fastball move? How does your curveball move? Um, actually, one of the biggest issues that we see is a high school athlete who says, um, well, I throw a curveball and they throw a curveball and it spins just like a slider. I'm like, no, that's great. You throw a slider. He's like, oh, I've never thrown a slider. I'm like, well, you've never thrown a curveball either. So <laughs> we're going to have to figure out one way or another which one you're throwing. Because I'm going to tell you right now, the Rapsodo tells me you don't throw a curveball. So then we get to work. And then we say, all right, based off what you've told me, and most kids come in here saying, well, I want to throw harder. Um, then we say, okay, so here's here's the protocols. Here's the plan. And it's a, it's a multi-month thing. I think a lot of kids don't realize that velocity is not instant results. You know, I can pull my phone out of my pocket and find something right now. Um, our bodies don't work the same way. It takes many months for us to develop, you know, the right muscle, the right uh, muscle memory, um, the right ability to, you know, execute such a very fine motor skilled um, motion, a very high speed, high rate of speed. And that stuff is not easy. You've got to force your body into it and, and train it consistently to see the results that you want to see. And, you know, some of the kids that, that we tell that to, I'm like, listen, you know, you're talking about a fraction of a mile per hour every week is what we're aiming for. Because at the end of the day, you know, if we look at it from a 12 month calendar, I said in 12 months, I want you to gain five miles an hour. That's not a lot. When you think about it in 52 week increments, I mean, you're talking about getting a 10th here or 10th there. Um, you know, how well are you sleeping? How well are you eating? You know, how much are you lifting and training? And then how, you know, how well are we doing on our throwing protocols? All of that plays into it. So getting them to understand that and then realizing that, yeah, this is going to be a, a process, but the results of that process are going to be a lot of fun. And, you know, this past year we were, you know, fortunate and unfortunate, obviously with all COVID stuff, it's, it's kind of really screwed over a lot of baseball seasons, but on the other side, it's given players a lot of extra time to train that they didn't have before. And so for a lot of our athletes from the fall up until now, when they're just getting ready to start their seasons, we had, I think we had in facility roughly 16 or so high school kids, and they all gained on average about five miles an hour since the fall. That's pretty impressive gains for such a large group. And, and then a lot of that is attributed to, they had nothing better to do. They came in and they trained. I'm like, this is the perfect example of what can happen if you do something consistently with a goal in mind. And so that's, yeah. that's where we're at. Yeah. And that's kind of, again, that's just kind of how we've grown and, and, you know, what our players are looking for when they come in. You're, you're spending a lot of time developing young arm talent and a lot of with high potential now what kind of advice do you have for a 32 year old male that's playing sunday league you know top 72 right uh, slow looping curveball you know what, what do you got for me uh so <laughs> first don't neglect the arm care right jager bands are, are they're cheap you can go to uh, dick sporting goods and pick up a set in the baseball section for like 35 bucks start with that and then continue to have fun continue to have a passion for the game forget about the metrics, go out there and play it. You know, I think I try and explain this to our, our you know, the, the parents that email me of their six and eight year old who they think needs private pitching lessons. 
your son or your daughter or whoever it is needs to develop a passion for the game first. One that, you know, the sure. three of you and obviously I, we all have. Develop a passion for the game first before making it a serious commitment. And then once you've decided that, you know what, this is something that I want to do, now we can spend a little bit of extra time and a little bit of extra capital and invest in the player development side. But, you know, for you as a 32-year-old, I think it's a 32, <laughs> I don't want to get to, get it wrong That's here. Right. Yeah. So as a 32-year-old, you know, former leaving maybe being an athlete, I'm not quite sure I've never seen you. Um, That's not good. It's... All right. I just say is you're playing now. Obviously, I see I see a Denver Brown shirt. So clearly you guys are, are connected to the Nava <laughs> universe. Continue to play, continue to have fun, enjoy yourself, right? You're not going to be able to do this forever. Um, or maybe you will. I don't know. I, you know what? There's um, the 65 and over league. There was a guy. So there used to be a facility here in town called um, Here to Play. It was up off 65th in Washington. Um, it's no longer there. But they had a field in the back. And they used to have this old timers like division that, that they would play. And this guy would come down from uh, Fort Collins. He was like, I want to say he was 70, 80 years old. And he had to play two of three games on the weekend. Otherwise it wasn't worth his time, but he came down and he played every inning of those two games because he had a passion for the game. And I said, you know what? I wish when I get to be your age that I still love this game as much as you do. So as a 32 year old playing Nava, continue to enjoy the game. Do not lose sight of that. It is still a lot of fun to play. Absolutely. It's uh, sorry. That was a really long-winded answer, but at the end of the day, keep your passion and, and pass that along to others because this next generation of athletes, I'll tell you what they don't do. They don't watch the game enough and they don't pay attention to it enough. They just play it and then they go on and do other things. You're absolutely right. Absolutely right. So let's dive into this career of yours. So you're it's drafted. Short. This will be quick. <laughs> we got some. We got some highlights. I watched right, the wiki, right. man. Come on. Uh, that's right. Um, the wiki. <laughs> no. So you were drafted in the second round by the Astros. Did you have? Did you ever get a chance to meet Nolan Ryan? I and did. If you did, did you get any advice or any cool stories like talking to him? Uh, so I did get to meet him. So after my um, it was my first year of pro ball. I think it was my first year. It may have been my second year. They, the Astros ran something called this elite pitchers camp. It was held in Houston at Minute Maid. And uh, Nolan Ryan was one of the, you know, I guess, guest instructors. Um, it was over the weekend. And so we rolled in there, you know, and I got to throw a bullpen on the game mound at, um, at Minute Maid with Nolan Ryan standing behind me watching with our pitching coordinators Dewey Robinson and I got done and Dewey looked at Nolan and said uh, so Nolan what do you think and Nolan goes looks good <laughs> that was it that's all I got out of him what that, was that, that like good. was that the yeah. highlight of your life at that point <laughs> <laughs> and to that point it was for sure I mean uh just pitching in front of Nolan Ryan obviously uh, is a, is a cool thing, but, you know, getting to meet him and um, interact with him a little bit. He has a, he has a very, very deep Texas drawl. And I remember listening to him speak for the first time going, I'm not quite sure that's English, 
but I, I hear <laughs> picking out a few words. And then once I got used, like listening to an Irish accent, like, you know, one of my instructors said I should watch this show called Dairy Girls. And I, you know, I'm watching, I'm like, I, I, I got nothing. I, I don't even understand. I'm not even sure this English. He goes, watch it with subtitles. It's a lot better. So I kind of felt like I needed subtitles for, for no one. But um, once I, I, I kind of got around him and got to listen to him a little bit, you, you can understand him a lot easier, but very, very nice guy. Um, his wife also was extremely nice. And we had some, uh, when I was in AAA with the, with the Astros, we had a, a barbecue before the season started at, at one of their investors' houses or something like ranches in, in Texas. And he walked around, he was the nicest guy. Um, you know, I was like, hey, no one, can I play catch with you? Like, I just want to throw. He goes, I haven't thrown a ball in however long. I've got bad knees and this, that, and the other. I'm like, all right, I guess that's you. Know, you're no one, right. please. Yeah. Like, and then I think a couple of years later, he was throwing the first pitch out of the game, throwing like 85 or some ridiculous number. I'm like, all right. Well, either way, I got to experience it and hang around him. He was an awesome dude. It's something I'll, I'll never, I'll never forget that, and I'll never trade for anything either. That reminds me of uh, Mac off Sunny in Philadelphia, where he's trying to have a catch with Chase Utley. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, met, I met Chase. I've met Chase Utley one time too. It was at my agent's office. He came in and it's like totally nonchalant surfer dude. <laughs> I can see that. <laughs> I can see yeah. Chase doing that. Yeah. All right. So, do you know the what is it called? The six degrees of Kevin Bacon or seven degrees of Kevin Bacon? Yeah. Six degrees of separation, but yes, we can do the bacon. Yes, you can do the Kevin Bacon thing too. Something like that. So anyway, Aaron and I, uh, we met uh, Clint Hurdle once. Okay. 2007, I think I was 18. Aaron, you had to been 20 or something. I had a beer. I think it was 21. Yeah. So anyway, 2007, um, going to the game 163, whatever it was, uh, one of the best experiences ever. But the next year we mm -hmm. met and he's one of I was really nervous because I was kind of a young guy and I've never met, you know, a big, big, big league player or anything like that. And I said, I was kind of nervous under my breath and Clint Hurdle kind of took me aside and said, we're just regular people, man. Like it's no big deal. Um, so At the I'm end of the day, Clint, Clint can be very intimidating too, because he's so loud. Yes, exactly. Right? And he he was, his nickname was Loudmouth Soup and because yes. he only had one tone of voice. Right. And I just like kind of barely said that. And like, he took me out in front of this big group and he's like, Oh, don't be nervous. We're just regular people, you know? And it was just one of the coolest experiences ever. Cause it was like, you know, just normal people. We're just out here playing a game and all this stuff. So I'm just curious, kind of like what that clubhouse was like, what it's like being around Clint, you know, just was it nice, easy flowing like that? Yeah. So, you know, that 07 clubhouse was definitely special. And I think there's something to be said about clubhouse chemistry and the right mix of guys, I mean, we certainly had it in 07. Um, you know, when I got traded to the Astros, or sorry, to the Rockies from the Astros, it was a bit of a gut punch for me, um, you know, because I was, you know, I had just come up in 06, and I was really anticipating being part of this, you know, great organization with storied history, and, and I had familiarity with everybody there. And so <clears throat> when I got the phone call that I had been traded, um, I didn't have a very good feeling. And one of the very first phone calls, if not the very first phone call I got after I got traded was from Clint. And he was very, you know, assuring, um, very comforting, you know, welcoming me to the, you know, to the family. And then I continued to get phone calls from the coaching staff, from Dan O'Dowd, from Rick Matthews and Bob Apodaca, and, you know, all just kind of welcoming me to this organization 
that I knew nothing about. I knew, I knew none of them. I knew no coaches. Um, you know, I, I didn't know anything and I wasn't really sure what, what to expect or what was going to go on. So, you know, getting to Colorado was, uh, it felt a lot better the first day I walked in there. Cause I felt, I felt like I kind of already knew those guys just based off their, you know, their initial interactions with me. And then getting to know Clint, you know, Clint at that point, obviously he was very loud, boisterous. Um, and he always seemed to have some kind of a comforting quote or inspirational saying or something like that. Like he kept a book or something like that on his table. And he just, he had everything earmarked for like, oh, you're feeling sad. Let me flip it over to this chapter. Like, here's a sad quote, uh, you know, things like that. I just felt like, you know, early on, I think that really worked. Um, as, as my time in Colorado grew, I felt like it, there was a little bit more of a disconnect. Like I didn't quite get the real Clint Hurdle. And uh, come to find out years later, um, when I was doing TV work for Root and he was with the Pirates, um, he was a completely different type of coach. And listen, we all go through learning you know, phases as, as coaches and even as players or any other profession that we choose. We're always learning from our mistakes. And I think one thing Clint realized was that he needed to be more sincere and genuine in how he talked with people and, and not just give them some inspirational, this, that, or the other. And so, you know, I ran into him at the clubhouse when he was with Pittsburgh and, you know, big bear hug and, oh, how's your family and blah, blah, blah. And he just, he felt a lot more warm and like he put off a, a much better aura. And then uh, he came out to the Rocky Mountain Sabre banquet that we had uh, a few years back and he gave one of the all-time greatest, just inspirational speeches. I was going to run through a brick wall for that guy that night. Like it just, you know, very, you know, from the heart humbling, you know, you could tell that baseball had taught him a lot. So, you know, we got a little bit of Clint in his infancy um, as a manager, obviously as a coach, he had a very storied history as a coach. And a lot of guys in the ball club respected him as a hitting coach and as a fielding instructor, on field you know, instructor. Um, so he was, that was definitely good. Um, the clubhouse was a nice mix, right? We had veteran guys, Todd, obviously, um, guys like Tori Alba. Um, we had young guys like me and Taylor Buckholtz and Troy Tulowitzki and Ryan Spielborgs. We all kind of filled our various roles on the team, right? Obviously, Todd was the old, you know, bitter, you know, veteran who'd been around through numerous, you know, <laughs> quote unquote, rebuilds and, and got awful seasons, um, you know, guys like Holiday and Hop were kind of the future of the organization that were, sh you know, showing very promising stars. You know, Tulo at that point, when I got there in 07, was, was just a rookie, right? He had a lot of promise to him. I played with him in the Futures game. So, you know, he had, he had some, uh, some hype behind him. And then there were guys like Latroy Hawkins, who I still speak with, and Matt Hurgis. And, um, you know, so you had a, a mix of veteran guys. You also had a very good, you know, like Tori Alba. You know, we had a great Latin contingent on that team, too. So even though we had our factions within the clubhouse, we always had guys that would bridge those factions that were able to communicate. So Tori Alba was like the liaison to the Latin American players. Um, you know, uh, Ryan Spielborgs was kind of like the liaison between the young guys and the older guys. And then guys like Brad Hopp and Garrett Atkins and, and Matt Holiday were kind of the in-between between between the veterans and the young guys, the guys that were, you know, had established themselves as, you know, as future stars in the game. And so there was a really good chemistry in that clubhouse. We all held each other, held each other to account. 
we had a lot of fun. We did a lot of, you know, rookie hazing type things that, you know, got everybody to laugh and have a good time. And so I think a lot of that played into how well we performed at various points throughout the season. Obviously the end of the season was the best part of the year, but you know, I think the early part of the season, we were all just kind of figuring each other out. Like who is this Hirsch guy and why did we get rid of our best pitcher for him? And, you know, who's this too low guy and why is he this promising young star? And why did we bring in, you know, LaTroy Hawkins? He hasn't been relevant in the last however many years. Like, you know, so it was just kind of figuring all those things out. And then once we all figured each other out, we started having a lot more fun and playing a little bit better baseball. Yeah, I think that September was probably the greatest month in Denver sports history. Oh, hands down. Oh, yeah, we we had no idea. We were floating on the ground the whole damn time. I mean, I, I remember a game, <laughs> we come back, I think it was against the Marlins. We were down like seven runs or something like that. We came back and won. And we were walking up the stairs back to the clubhouse and Francis looked over at me and he goes, how are we going to win tomorrow? Like, it was just one of those things, like, who's going to who's gonna do it tomorrow? Is it, Are we going to pitch tomorrow? Are we going to hit tomorrow? Like, which one is it? Because, you know, during that run, you know, we would go down by a boatload of runs and the offense would, would dig us out of that grave. Uh, or the offense, you know, couldn't hit their way out of a wet paper bag and the pitching would sit there and hold tight until somebody came through. It was just, it was a weird dynamic. But, uh, you know, somebody somebody was always pulling the right end of the rope you know, for that last month and a half. Yeah, that was, that was an amazing year. And we're all like primarily Rockies fans here. So that's kind of the, our, you guys our, weren't in diapers back then, right? You're 32. <laughs> so that makes you like, Oh, seven. That was a long ass time ago. <laughs> but it, it's, it's still <laughs> pretty cool for you that you're kind of part of that alumni of that season. That's going to be in history for, you know, ever for that franchise. Yeah, I, like I said, I'm very blessed and fortunate to do what I did in such a short amount of time in the big leagues, right? I got less than two years in the big leagues, and I've got something like seven or eight years in the minor leagues. And again, I was able to accomplish a lot of awesome things. You know, like I said, I won Pitcher of the Year awards, you know, it was in double A AA and triple A. Um, I was the first pitcher to ever do that until I think last season, two years ago. Um, who's a guy from St. Louis that did it? Um, Brian. Benjamin Hockman called me about it. Um, I can't remember who it is right now. But anyway, like I said, I, I did that awesome feat. And then I got called up to the big leagues. And, you know, I got to play on a World Series team. And then I went through a catastrophic arm. Like I said, I did a lot in a very short amount of time. So, you know, to kind of be in the right place at the right time with the Rockies was obviously it was, a, it was a blessing. Like I never, I never imagined that I would get there so fast. Uh, or be in that position so uh, as quickly as I was. I figured, you know, I'd be in the big leagues for five or six years and maybe never even taste the playoffs, let alone make the World Series my my first full season there. Yeah, that's, yeah you did kind of go, you went up and down. all. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, when I got true. called up to Houston in 06, my teammates on that team were Roger Clemens, Andy Pettit, Roy Oswalt, Craig Biggio, Lance Berkman, Jeff Bagwell, Ooh. Brad Osmus, like wow, like a who's who of that was of like, that team, wasn't it? Wow, like potential Hall of Famers, and that's what I got thrown into right off the bat. Hang on, wait, so, who's those guys? Yeah, right. And so, but but again, you know, I talked wow. about it was a gut punch. I'm like, you know, I'm ready to go be a Houston Astro with like all of these Hall of Famers, these amazing players, 
And then they trade me to Colorado. I'm sitting there going, really? The Rockies? Like, who are these guys? I don't know anybody here. I know Coors Field's a laughing stock of the league, and they always have a bunch of nobodies. And here I am in the World Series with a whole bunch of nobodies. I did kind of want to talk to you about Coors Field a little bit. And like, did you notice a difference with your pitches in there? Because I, I know there's uh, talk about like Trevor Bauer and stuff saying that his fastball broke a little bit differently and stuff like that. But did you notice anything like that for you personally? Yeah. So the biggest difference for me at Coors Field was I stopped throwing my two-seamer when I got there. And the reason I did that is because I call it the Colorado Cutter is because however, and this is way before pitch tracking technology and stat cast and all that stuff, for whatever reason, the way it came off my hand, the ball would cut. And if I wanted a ball to sink, and let's just say I've thrown Albert Pools and I want to sink her down and in, and it cuts over the heart of the plate and he hits at a mile into left center, which he did, um, <laughs> you know, that's on me. So I stopped throwing a two-seamer because I knew it was unpredictable. Um, so I only threw four-seamers at altitude and sliders and curveballs and change-ups. Um, but in terms of the field itself, I didn't feel like Coors Field played unfairly when I pitched. Anybody who hit a home run off of me at Coors Field would have been a home run in any other ballpark in the major leagues. The only time I really felt that it played unfairly was when the weather got hot. When it was exceptionally hot at Coors Field, I felt like the ball jumped quite a bit. But what kills you at Coors Field is the size of the field itself. The outfield is flipping enormous. And so that's where a single turns into a double or a double turns into a triple or what should be a bloop to somebody in the infield or the outfield falls in between a guy because guys are playing so far back. Um, so it's just kind of learning the strategy of Coors Field and, and understanding what works for you at altitude. You know, there are some players that come in here that say, well, I can't feel the ball or, you know, my stuff doesn't break the same. Honestly, I feel like that's a cop-out. Like they've already kind of convinced themselves when they show up that they're just going to be shitty pitchers when they get here. Um, and, and in reality, they're not. I mean, everything works the way. I mean, think about all the great pitchers who've, who've ever walked through the doors of Coors Field. Pretty much every single one of them is still great at the end of the day. And it's not like it make, you know, made or break their or broke their their careers or, or even their, their season. So, um, you know, they have to deal with it the same way that we have to deal with it. And so... I didn't like to make excuses for it. I didn't, I didn't feel like Coors Field treated me any more unfairly than let's just say, you know, Minute Maid did. And in my major league debut, I gave up three bombs to the Crawford boxes that should have been that if they were at Coors Field would have landed, you know, 150 feet short of the left field wall, but they were home runs that day. So, you know, you, you, you can't be, can't be upset with the cards that you're dealt. You just got to make do with what you got. And, you know, the same principles apply at altitude as they do every other place. If you change speeds and work fast and, you know, throw hard and get ahead of guys, you're going to have success. And I think the, the Coors Field model for pitchers has is, is evolved over the years. Um, and maybe it hasn't evolved enough. I don't know. Maybe the metrics are, are, are going to point me in the wrong direction. But I feel like guys that have overpowering stuff with strikeout ability are going to have better success at, at altitude than guys who are sinker ball contact pitchers who are going to let Coors Field determine their success or failure. Yeah, there might be something to that. Did you ever throw your two-seamer on the, uh, on a, at away games? Oh, 100%. If I got down yeah. to Miami or L.A., you, you bet your, your ass I was throwing sinkers. Because, again, at altitude. So you were really at, adjusted, like, every time. 
Yeah. I mean, I just, at the end of the day, it was, can I run, can I run one in on somebody or underneath their hands or do I have to, you know, make an adjustment with my four seamer to get it in there. And so, you know, at that point as a big league pitcher, I was able to do that, you know, make those adjustments at home and on the road. Um, I may have been more effective on the road with my fastball than I was at Coors Field, but I didn't really feel like it affected my approach in, the, in those games. Right. Yeah. I, I do want to thank you for that refreshing um, sense of fresh air. Like you, like exactly what you said, like there's always an excuse. And like, I mean, that's just kind of where we are. I, you know, society. I, to be honest like, with you, I'm sick and tired of the excuses of Coors Field and the Rockies and all that other bullshit that comes with it. You I know, think it's it, it's one of those times it's time to piss or get off the pot for them. Mm-hmm. And they, they, you either need to embrace it or you just need to be satisfied with the fact that they're going to be, you know, a half-assed ball club for a long time, right? Or right. you can adopt right. to modern-day metrics and development technologies and actually figure out what works there. And then, again, there are, there are great people that work for the Rockies and their coaching staff, and they're all trying to figure out the same thing. But as an outsider looking in and talking with people who've been within the organization as players – I know there's a lot of disconnect there right now. And there's that's a huge problem when it comes to putting a quality product on the field. Right. Yeah, yeah it goes don't... back it goes back to what you said earlier about having the right people in this in the clubhouse makes a huge difference. And yep. that's kind of what it seems like we've been lacking for a while. Well, and even in, by today's metrics, yeah, by today's standards, I mean, when you have your entire analytics team quitting. You know, you had one of the mm-hmm. smallest to begin with, but when you have the entire analytics team quitting on their own accord, as in getting out of the big, big leagues after they already got into it, you've got a huge problem there. And I think the Rockies themselves have not embraced that that modern development um, philosophy to, and, and it's worked out to their detriment right now. And they're, they're just not capable of developing and putting the right people in, in place that are going to give those you know, highly touted draft picks an opportunity to have success at the next level when they're constantly being told conflicting ideas on how they should develop themselves. Mm-hmm. So I got, I got a couple of questions based off of that. So I, mean, I know I just opened up Pandora's box. Sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, just dive in as, as much as, or as little as you want to, but I mean, from your perspective, what kind of, what kind of players does it take to be successful at, at Coors Field? I mean, not just, pitchers but position players what kind of mentality things like that I mean you hear you know Chuck and some other guys talking about how the mentality is so different you know going on the road and coming back and all of these things I I don't know what it's like you have a little bit of taste of what that's like so I'm just right so I think from a position player standpoint the Rockies have it nailed if they they, they would probably be I would say they're they're probably one of the better position player developing franchises in baseball at least from a term you know of you know, outfielders and, and maybe, you know, left side of the infield, third base shortstop. They've been pretty good at that over the years. Uh, one area that they've certainly lacked in is catching. Um, they haven't been very good at developing catchers or even targeting the right kinds of catchers, um, whether it's in the draft or in free agency or, or from Latin America, or whatever it might be. Um, and obviously there's been a void at first base for, well, basically since Todd left. Um, but, you know, it seems like there's a revolving door of outfielders that can all hit. Um, that all have decent power, they hit for decent average. Um, and whether you're doing it on the road or not, yes, they're, I'm, you know, they're making adjustments. The, the area where I feel like they've struggled 
mightily, and I don't think they've ever done it well is developing pitching. You know, I think they're still trying to figure out what works at Coors Field. And, you know, through the years, I've watched certain guys come through there, including myself. I mean, I was a sinker ball guy. Um, you know, I watched a guy like Jorge De La Rosa, you know, dominate at Coors Field with wipeout stuff and at times an overpowering fastball. And I'm sitting there going, the role model for developing pitchers is right there on the mound. Like, it seems to me that the overpowering arm, which the Rockies have quite a few of now, with wipeout stuff or strikeout ability seems to be the way that you should be looking or what you should be looking for, more of the swing and miss guys. You're going to give up your fair share of home runs at Coors Field. It's going to happen. Welcome to Colorado. You know, and you have to just be resigned to accepting that fact. But taking a power arm in the draft, um, you know, I'm trying to think of names over the years that, well, Mike Nickerek, for example, was was supposedly a can't miss guy, right? Um, or, you know, anybody else who these can't miss throwing prospects. And you take them into the minor leagues and you try and shove them into this cookie cutter and say, we're going to be a sinker ball pitcher with a slot wipeout slider. And that's what's going to have success at Coors Field. Well, modern day training and technology tells us that that doesn't work for everybody. That, you know, let's just say, for example, that uh, James, you have a high spin rate fastball with a very vertical uh, curveball or something along those lines. You're not going to be a sinker ball pitcher. You're not going to have success being a sinker ball pitcher. You're going to have success throwing fastballs up in the zone with nasty curveballs down in the dirt to get guys to swing and miss. And you should be able to tailor the development to that instead of saying, we're all going to throw sinker balls because we want to keep the ball down at Coors Field. It doesn't work for everybody that way. And I've talked to guys that have been in the minor leagues mm. with the Rockies that have told me that they try and shove everybody into this mold and out the back end is supposed to come a major league pitcher. And it works for a guy like Kyle Freeland because that's kind of what he is. He's a sinker slider guy. You know, John Gray's got a plus plus fastball. He has pretty good wipeout slider slash curveball, whatever he's calling it these days. But he also lacks some separation that could really make him an elite level pitcher um, by creating a little bit of a difference off his fastball you know, in terms of depth on some things that I think would help them out tremendously. So, you know, it's just being able to look at those guys and recognize their each individual has their own things that they do really well and that those things should be exploited instead of trying to make everybody fit into this, you know, for lack of a better example, let's Aaron Cook slash Jeff Francis slash Jason Hirsch type mold where we're just going to throw sinkers and sliders and, and hopefully get away with it. Um, so again, I think there's some disconnect there in, in just understanding, you know, the players that you have in your system and how to make them or exploit them for the reason why they're as good as they are, or the reason why you decided to draft them in the first place. Yeah. And the, the funny thing about De La Rosa, who's arguably the best pitcher in Rockies history is he, he was a gift to the organization. I mean, he was kind right. of a, well, a washout guy from Kansas city and then he shows up and then he was a player to be named. Right. right. He was, he was a throwing. Who's the best pitcher on the Rockies right now? Armand Marquez. He was a throwing in the Corey Dickerson trade. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. And he's one of the best pitchers in major league, ba metrically one of the best pitchers in major league baseball. Absolutely. So, you know, the guys that have had the most success here didn't weren't developed here. You know, if this Austin Gomer kid who came from St. Mm -hmm. Louis, if he shows up and, and is all of a sudden like this incredible pitcher for the Rockies, you know, 
you Rockies can't sit there and pat themselves on the back and say, look what we did. They have to look at St. Louis and say, thank you. Thank you for developing mm -hmm. a pitcher that we can use. And there's a lot of examples out there that the Rockies can look towards like St. Louis or Tampa or Kansas city or anybody that, that, that invests in these modern training tools and go, we can do that. It's not that hard. It's just, it takes, it takes getting the right people in place with the right knowledge that are able to communicate that effectively to the athletes. And there's, there's a lot of very old school guys in the Rockies development system or, or development train that are still like, we need to do towel drills and run two miles a day. Well, modern baseball says that towel drills and running two miles a day are very counterproductive towards creating effective or developing effective pitchers and that there are better ways to do things. And so you've just got to be willing to adapt to those things. And um, they've been very slow to do it. And I hope that in the future that they at least start considering that, that aspect of it, because the one area of major league baseball that, that you are not limited in how much money you can spend is in player development, right? Mm -hmm. you, you're, you're limited on your roster and how many, how much money you can pay certain guys, but I can go out there and spend a million dollars on, on Trackman and Rap Soto, or I can spend, you know, $5 million and hire a, a 20 person analytics team to comb over this data and tell me what I've got and how do I apply that to my athletes. That's the most frustrating thing about the organization is the fact that they've never been a standout club in any of those areas, except for if you're a hitter, you love to go hit at mile high. I right. mean, wouldn't you? But that's just, that's just the byproduct of where you're at. That's not a part of the development system. Right. So um, one of the things I'm most frustrated by is watching teams like the Oakland athletics and the Tampa Bay Rays who are small market teams, but yet their scouting departments are amazing their development is amazing it, it's just so on and so forth and then you watch you know the Rockies who aren't even that small of a market team they're middle of the club I mean you have <laughs> I mean Monford himself he's taken for granted the fact that fans are going to show up no matter what right well they've made Coors Field an experience right yeah, I, yeah. the party deck I mean three dollar beers before pitch first pitch let's go I mean well, it's cheap. I say no to that. It's cheap family entertainment. It's downtown. It's very convenient to go, you know, take your friends and hey, let's go grab a ball game, $5 seats in the rock pile. Then we're going to go hit up the Blake Street Tavern and, and drink our faces off and, and then Uber home. Like right. it's, it's just part of it. Right? <laughs> you're not going, you're not necessarily going to the ballpark to watch the ball game. You're just going to the ballpark to be in that atmosphere. And they believe me, of course, field is a beautiful ballpark, unbelievable atmosphere. They've done a phenomenal job of that. And, you know, there is a hardcore set of fan in, in Colorado, you know, obviously you three would be part of that, that group that are going to go for the product on the field, not necessarily the experience that surrounds it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and it just, it takes more real baseball fans to make, an, you know, make a stink about the product on the field, you know, and maybe the straw that breaks camel's back is, is Nolan Arenado. Maybe that was the piece that finally gets fans to go, you know what? This sucks. We don't have the greatest third baseman in major league history anymore. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. We don't have what what purpose do we have now? We don't have a team identity. We don't have, you know, anything to, to really, you know, stick a feather in and go, that's our guy. Right. Because Trevor's going to walk next year. Yep. Yeah. If he's, not, if, he, if he's not gone by the all-star break, you know, then what is your team identity at that point? Yeah, yeah. I was I was talking about that a little bit about how uh 
you know, we used to always have Todd Helton and that was our, you know, year in, year out, at least we had him and he stayed his whole career. But now it's like, we can't even get guys to stay that long because they, they don't want to be a part of it. Yeah. And I think it sends a message when you, when you trade away a guy like Nolan, the way, and the way you treated him over the last couple of years, you know, it sends a message to all the other players in the organization that realistically you're just here to get to the big leagues and then go, go seed other teams. Like we're not going to really show you a ton of loyalty. There's no reason for you to have that loyalty to our brand. And, you know, I've talked with a lot of other people about this is, is, you know, how do you change that? Well, it, it, it's a cultural thing, right? It has to start within the organization and at the top and work its way down so that everybody understands that we're all on the same team, that we're all pulling the same end of the rope. And right now they've got a culture problem. There's a huge disconnect between, you know, the front office, the general manager, and the ownership, and the players and the coaches, and nobody's really got a cohesive message right now that, that, would make you excited to want to be a Rocky long-term, you know, maybe 10 years ago, there was that excitement, but you know, the last four five, six years, you know, there really hasn't been a reason to remain loyal to the Rockies uh, for anything, you know, mm -hmm. because they're, they're showing time and time again, you know, for one reason or another that, you know, you can be replaced by somebody cheaper yeah. or, we don't have the money to really afford to keep you around. So sayonara. Mm -hmm. All right, and this is unfortunate because I, I think, I think like, you know, like James, you had mentioned St. Louis, like there's tons of, of models out there that the Rockies can look at right. and go, we could do that. Like you could be a St. Louis where you've got an incredibly passionate fan base and you turn over, you know, new players every year, but still have loyalty to some of your bigger names. You can do the Tampa Bay model and turn over guys as soon as they hit arbitration because it's the next guy up. You know, when David Price left, you know, uh, Blake Snell stepped in or, you know, whoever the next line, you know, whoever was the next in line of, of great arms to come out of Tampa Bay, you know, you have the capabilities of doing, I feel like they do that with outfielders, but mm -hmm. we haven't been able to do that with any other position yet. Yeah. I, so I have a little bit of a theory here. So you have guys that are so passionate about winning all the time. That's all they care about. Guys like Tulowitzki, Arenado, that's what they want to do, right? Right. You have people like Todd Helton. You have people like Charlie Blackman that winning's nice, but at the same time, like, I like being an outdoorsman. I like uh, going hunting and all of those things. And so, like, those guys were probably a little bit more loyal than they should have been. So am I kind of off track on thinking like those guys love to stay in Colorado and they, they tolerated the losing, even though they didn't, they didn't want it. They didn't like it, but I mean, they'll put up with it to a certain extent because they like where they're at. I don't know if I'd go that far. Listen, I don't know a single ball player in major league baseball who doesn't, who, who, who doesn't like winning. You know what I mean? Like winning changes the attitude of everything and, and right. the better ball clubs you're on, and the more you win, you know, the more fun you're going to have, you know, for a guy like Todd, you know, I think it was really important for Todd to remain loyal, uh, just kind of the way he's built. You know, he wanted to, there's something to be said about somebody who spends their entire career with one organization because it doesn't happen anymore. Right. With free, everybody goes to chase money. Um, and, and, you know, and for a guy like Charlie, 
you know, maybe he felt like, you know, Colorado's the best place for him and that therefore I want to be here. And, you know, I, there's a very common theme. If you talk to any player in major league baseball, when they say, what do you think about coming to Colorado? They all will tell you hands down that Colorado is one of their favorite places to visit. They absolutely love everything about it, whether it's the field and the atmosphere, the, the clubhouse, the people, you know, downtown, you know, the hotels that they stay in or just having the mountains there, whatever it is, they all without a doubt will tell you that they love Colorado. They just don't want to be here. They don't want to play here. Right. They don't want to do it on a long-term basis. So how do you, how do you bridge that gap? How do you take a guy who loves coming to Colorado and visiting and how do you, how do you show him that this can be a place where you can have success in your career? You know, and, and maybe part of it is, the national media that kind of looks at Colorado as well, they play, you know, it's basically junior varsity baseball up there at altitude or, um, you know, the constant reminder that, you know, your numbers are being inflated here. Therefore your career is not as cool as, as it would have been as if you were to do it in LA or Chicago or New York, or, you know, one of the more traditional baseball markets. So, you know, part of that is, I think that's part of the culture. Um, that we talked about earlier. And then part of it is, you know, explaining to people, you know, that yes, Colorado presents its own challenges, but I think with a guy like Larry Walker getting into the hall of fame as a Rocky, that opens the door to a lot of other ball players that have had great successful careers here that you can start to measure against other players. Cause at the end of the day, you can't punish a guy like Todd for playing his mm -hmm. entire career at Coors Field. He didn't choose to be drafted by the Rockies but he did chose to show them or choose to show them loyalty and spend his entire career there. That shouldn't be held against him. If anything, it should be held as a, as a bonus for spending his entire career in one place. Yeah, so sure. like I said, there's, there are some cultural things and some messaging things that um, I think the Rockies struggle with, or that's been really inconsistent over the years that um, that give it a bad name and a bad rap. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think well, these are just my personal opinions. Yeah. Yeah. You know, obviously I didn't spend enough time here to really, you know, have a shitty career. Um, <laughs> I, I kind of took that upon myself to do that, but you know, just <laughs> my short time playing here, I freaking loved it. I still live here. I, I, I have business here, you know, family. Um, but I feel like there, it, it just, I wish it could be so much more. Yeah, I really do. Yeah. Like, I feel yeah, like we all, do. Be, we all do. I really feel like it, if it was done right, with the right messaging, like going to Coors Field, you could have 50,000 there every night yep. and you would have 50,000 like rabid baseball fans, mm -hmm. not 20,000 rabid baseball fans and 30,000 drunk people. Right. That's we've, the frustration. We've, we've been talking about it for a hot minute now, the, uh, the other Coors effects. And it's exactly what you just touched on. Like there are people that just go to the game for the time, not the baseball baseball part of it. And yeah. That's the Coors effect that kind of um, yeah. And you know what? Affects it, you know? I mean, I'll be dead honest with you guys, and it might piss people off who are listening to this. But Colorado, some—I'm not going to say all of you guys. There are some Colorado fans that are just terrible baseball fans. They just don't understand the game. You know, I—I mm. I always give this example of the story. We were in St. Louis. This was 07, and Matt Holiday had just flied out to deep right field, and it was a sack fly, moved a runner from second to third. When he came back to the dugout, the Cardinals fans behind our dugout were sitting there and applauding him for hitting a sack fly. 
And I looked over at whoever was standing next to him, was Taylor Buckle or somebody. I said, they would have booed his ass in Colorado for not hitting the bomb. Like it's yeah. just, it's a different, it's a different understanding of the game. And I, I feel like there, there's, there are some good hardcore baseball fans who understand baseball, but the casual fan who's going to Coors Field is not there for baseball or doesn't understand baseball enough. They just want to see bombs and drink beers. Yeah. And I, I just got, I just got one point I got to make off of this. So everybody's really frustrated with the front office, especially with the Nato move and the writing on the wall with the story and all of those things. And you have the hardcore fans that are saying, Oh, well let's boycott and let's uh, do this and that. That's never going to happen. Every single time I've ever been to a Rockies game, you have, I, there's five uh, little league teams walking across um, the warning track, you know, from Wyoming and Nebraska and Colorado and all these things. And then, you know, it's old guys coming out there to, to just, you know, enjoy the scenery and with their family and blah, blah, blah. That's never going to change boycotting, whatever. Regardless and, of the product on the field, there will be 30,000 butts in the seats every yeah, summer night that there's a exactly. game. And Miami, Miami Marlins have two world championships. Just so <laughs> just put that on record. The cool respect is real. Um, I know we've gone over our time with you, Jason. You're good, I appreciate dude. you being here. Um, we'll end it with this. There's a little lightheartedness here. I have two sure. questions for you. The first one, do you remember who you got your three hits off of? Yes. Who? Uh, two of them are off Tom Gladden. <laughs> I remember that because it was the same game. It was an infield single. I beat it out. <laughs> and it was a bases loaded single down the right field line that should have been a double. And I have no idea why Sean Green was playing so damn close to the line. And <laughs> my very first hit was off of, um, is it Brian Bannister? Yep. Ban yeah, it was Brian Bannister with the, with the Royals. I still mm -hmm. have the baseball at my house. And it says, so when you get your first anything, the very first, the, the, whoever's the trickster in the clubhouse will put a ball in your locker that has everything wrong on it, just to, just to try and get a, a reaction out of you. So I had a ball in my locker. It said, first major league hit, uh, soft fly ball to right field that any good outfielder would have caught. Set <laughs> it right there on the ball. And yeah, so I still have that, but I remember he threw me, I don't know, it was a cutter or something like that. And I just, you know, closed my eyes and swung and it ended up in right center. And I was on first base. That was my first big league hit. Hey, it counts. It does. And don't sell yourself short. You also got two RBIs off Tom Glavin. I Make did. Sure you put that in there. You know why I got a hit off Tom Glavin? Here's what I tell people. Because he threw my speed. It was end of his career, Tom Glavin, who <laughs> was throwing like, you know, 84, 85, I did. I will tell you this though. He did throw me a changeup, and I swung out of my ass. And I shit you not. I felt like I dislocated my shoulder because I swung <laughs> so damn hard at it. I wanted to hit that ball so flipping hard. And then the ball that I did hit down the right field line, even if it was at 85 miles an hour, I was so late on it. That was the only place <laughs> I was ever going to get a hit was down that line. Cause Carlos Delgado had zero mobility at first base. And he gave it the old, like, Oh, I'm falling over as I'm moving towards the line. I'm, I'll just let it go. <laughs> That's Sorry. awesome. And then the last question, do you have any inkling to pitch again, maybe for the Denver Browns or anything? <laughs> I'll tell you what, Matt Replinger puts me on the Matt roster. Man. Oh yeah. He puts me on the roster every year, just in case I feel the itch <laughs> to, uh, to come out of retirement. I will tell you this. 
I have not thrown a ball in any regularity. It's probably been six or seven years. I mean, I can play catch, but I ain't going to pitch. It's going to look up. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to wipe my ass in the morning if I do. <laughs> it's going to be a little sore. So, I mean, if I do, I'm getting back in shape. I, I'm, I'm a big outdoorsman now, and so I'm trying to, you know, archery season's coming up here in September, and so I'm trying to get back into shape. Um, I'm lifting in the gym and I'm like, you know what, maybe I'll start throwing the ball around a little bit just to just to see. The problem is, as we discussed earlier in this broadcast, I'm a small business owner and I spend so much damn time sitting on my ass doing administrative work that I could be doing out on the floor throwing and getting myself into shape. So if one of you guys would like to participate as a uh, administrator for my my company, uh, <laughs> is a uh, unpaid intern and answer emails <laughs> and pay my bills, I'm happy to get my arm back in shape and potentially entertain a comeback with the Browns. We'll, we'll reach out to rep for you and see if yeah. he can find somebody. I don't know if that's our, our alley. I don't know if that's what we're doing. He, did, did he tell you guys like about the, uh, well, I think he did it, it was on Christmas where he did like this big signing. He was going to come to my house. Like it was a publisher's clearinghouse thing, like this giant contract <laughs> and have me sign, create this giant press release about a Jason Hirsch is signing with the Browns to play for the <laughs> 2021 season. Oh, he did not mention that. Oh yeah. That, that was in the works. I don't know if I it clearly it never had, I think he put out the press release, but he never showed up to my door with his <laughs> camera crew. <laughs> we'll have to get on him on that. That's yeah, that's should. Awesome. Um, thank you again, Jason, for coming. I really appreciate you being here, talking rocks, talking baseball, and just doing the thing at Fast Baseball. Thanks, man. Anytime uh, you guys want to do this again, let me know. I'm happy to join you. Don't Absolutely. be too much, man. We're real people. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you are. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. man. Enjoy. Right. See you guys. Thanks, Jason. Yeah. yeah. Bye. Thank you for watching. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube can listen to us on Spotify, Apple's podcast, or Google podcast by looking up Lake Street Banter. Thank you.